welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Well, if he had any doubts before, Paul Manafort now knows that special counsel Robert Mueller is watching his every move. And it earned him a scolding from the judge overseeing his conspiracy and money laundering case this morning. Prosecutors accused the former Trump campaign manager of ghostwriting an op-ed in a Ukrainian newspaper, violating a gag order prohibiting any of the parties from communicating with the media. Joining me is Stephen Vladek, professor at the University of Texas School of Law. Steve, prosecutors revealed that they knew nearly every detail of that editing process of the op-ed, including how long Manafort worked on it, the changes he made, writing it in Microsoft Word. Is it unusual that they appear to be monitoring him so closely? So I think it's not that unusual when you consider the circumstances here. Here we have an individual who has been indicted, who has been brought before a federal judge, who's been arraigned, who's entered into an agreement with the prosecutors regarding his ability to be free on bail pending his you know, forthcoming prosecution. I think those are perhaps the circumstances in which you could expect the most aggressive uh, monitoring and supervision by prosecutors to ensure that this defendant who, you know, the prosecution agreed to allow out on bond um, is complying with the terms of the release agreement. So the judge reprimanded him, saying the point of the gag order is to have the merits of the case debated by everyone in this courtroom, not in the press. Manafort's lawyer actually argued that he should have the right to defend himself in the press. What is Manafort risking by violating this order and pushing it? Yeah, I mean, I think, most importantly, I think Manafort is risking eventually provoking the judge into uh, suspending the order and basically ordering Manafort into custody. I think we're not there yet. I mean, I think this is not the kind of situation where someone who's out on bond is going around and committing other crimes or is, you know, engaging in the other kind of reprehensible conduct that would lead to a revocation of a bond order. But I don't know why, if you're Paul Manafort, this is a hornet's nest that you want to stir. I mean, I think, you know, the more that you annoy the judge in this context, the less likely he's going to be sympathetic down the road. Why ever annoy the judge? And his lawyers this morning presented the judge with a new bail package. He agreed that he would forfeit four properties worth $11.7 million if he failed, failed to appeal in court in exchange for dropping his electronic monitoring and home confinement. And the judge questioned whether the assets were sufficient and also whether Manafort should be able to move freely among his three homes. What is she worried about here? Is she really worried about him fleeing? Uh, I think there's some concern about fleeing. I think there's also a concern that, you know, the more freedom of movement someone like Manafort has, the more he could try, perhaps behind the scenes, to, you know, taint the jury pool or to otherwise, you know, um, distort the the case that's eventually going to be brought against him. But, you know, I mean, let's keep in mind, this is, you know, someone who's charged with very serious crimes, you know, who presumably is still of significant interest to special counsel Mueller as a potential witness. Um, And so I think, you know, from the judge's perspective, keeping him close to home is valuable not only to ensure that he's not a flight risk um, and not only to sort of limit his ability to 
to interfere with public perception about his case. But it also, I mean, let's be frank, you know, preserves the ease of access that the special counsel will have to him and his counsel if there's a point down the road where Manafort becomes interested in, you know, turning state's evidence and, and entering into some kind of cooperation agreement. Steve, Will it reach a point if he keeps putting more and more assets on the table where the judge will basically have to let him let him go out on, you know, without the confinement? I mean, you know, there's, there's sort of a practical answer to that and a legal answer. Legally, no. I mean, legally, these are the kinds of questions that are generally committed to the discretion of the trial judge, where as long as they're not acting in a manner that's, you know, completely unreasonable, um, an appellate court's not going to get antsy about it. I think practically, sure. I mean, I think if we get to a point where Manafort is putting up literally hundreds of millions of dollars to ensure his appearance in court, it's going to be hard for the, the government to oppose his request. Of course, that assumes that there's no additional mischief by Manafort, that there are no additional episodes that seem to be in violation of his agreement um, that gave rise to this in the first place. I think the more he, you know, uh, pokes that bear, I think the less likely he's going to receive any sympathy from the special counsel's team or from the judge. Also, does his ghostwriting that op-ed with a former Ukrainian colleague show that he still remains close to these colleagues that, uh, that he's accused of dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 worst, the worst optics of this are sort of not the specific offense, but rather the, the substance of the thing that he did. I mean, I think, you know, for someone who is being prosecuted for being up to his eyeballs with, you know, sinister and shady foreign elements, and then for lying about it to the FBI, to then go around while he's under indictment and ghostwrite this kind of op-ed with that kind of, you know, co-author on that kind of subject, um, I don't really think it's the best look for someone like Manafort in that context. And so, you know, I think it's it's fair to question the, his judgment at this point. And, you know, if he received advice from anyone else, you know, their judgment as well. And Steve, we have about 30 seconds here. How unusual is it that there are a couple of hundred thousand documents being turned over by the special counsel to Manafort, including about 2,000 that are called hot documents? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it's unusual only in the sense of the volume. But, I, I mean, again, this is such a high-profile case and, frankly, I mean, let's be clear, a series of cases that I think, you know, the special counsel is going to be very careful to avoid even the appearance of impropriety when it comes to reciprocal discovery. So, you know, I think the special counsel is doing this by the book. Um, we're only here because, by you know, every day after day, it seems like Manafort's increasingly trying to see when that book runs out. Well put, as always. Thank you for being here. That's Stephen Vladek. He's a professor at the University of Texas School of Law. Byers' proposed $66 billion takeover of Monsanto would make it the world's largest integrated pesticides and seeds company if the deal goes through as planned. The European Union's antitrust regulator is set to hand Bayer a so-called statement of objections with potential reasons for it to block the takeover as soon as this week, according to two people familiar with the EU's investigation into the merger. Joining me is Peter Carstensen, professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Peter, EU Competition Commissioner Margret Vesteyer said last week that regulators are looking very carefully at the competition issues and are going into great detail to analyze the company's operations. What concerns them most? Uh, probably it's the overall concentration in 
the both the production uh, and distribution of ag chemicals and the dominance of the genetically modified and other uh, forms of seed. I know genetically modified seeds are not favored in Europe, but this is really going to concentrate the supply side for uh, crops of all kinds. So are they worried that the prices to farmers will be higher? Yes. This is gonna, the, the concern is that it will result in, one, increased prices, two, a reduction in uh, options, alternatives, alternative types of seed available to farmers, and three, that it is likely to adversely affect innovation, that is, with fewer competitors, the incentive to do more by way of developing new seeds and seeds better adapted to particular farming needs will be reduced. They don't have the competition. They won't have the race to develop the new products, the new seeds. Right. So Bayer has already agreed to sell a seed and agrochemical business. In order to get approval for its merger with DuPont, Dow had to agree to some major concessions. Is that a roadmap for this deal? Certainly that's a possibility. I mean, uh, Dow... I mean, Bayer has sold some, but not all, of its seed uh, and and ag chemical uh, operations to BASF, or is proposed to do that. Uh, That's certainly the way we're seeing a lot more mergers resolved these days. There are, in this in this case, the Monsanto Bayer, there is enough concern still that overall the impact of the transaction will be just so severe on competition, that you ju- that there's no way to fix it. Uh, we'll see what the European agencies and the American think about that. There have been calls from lawmakers, as well as, this time, environmental and activist groups to block the deal. Does that put pressure on the EU antitrust authorities, or does it seem like Vestager feels pressure from no one? Oh, it, it, Good agencies are aware of the politi- of the politics uh, when it's consistent with what they're likely to want to do. It's helpful because they're not going to be denounced for doing what they think they ought to do. Uh, on the other hand, when they decide no, we don't go with that political uh, uh, perspective because it's just not uh, a valid concern in the context of this particular transaction, they can ignore uh, the politics, and they're going to get support from a number of other sources. So um, it's, it will force sometimes a more thoughtful consideration if you know that you're going to be before a congressional committee or the European Parliament having to explain your decision. Mm-hmm. So you'll be a little more careful, but it's not likely to drive the decision. Well. What about the fact that this does this come maybe just a little too late? Because you have the Dow DuPont merger and the ChemChina Syngenta merger set to go. So the industry has become even more concentrated and it was already concentrated. Is one more big deal just one too many? I think that's very much what um, certainly many of us like myself who would like to see merger law enforced much more actively, are very concerned about. The, the industry is being transformed from one where there were four or f- well five, really, major 
players plus a BASF at the margin to one that's going to be three, uh, uh, maybe four, depending on how strong BASF turns out to be. And we know from a, a growing body of empirical work that industries with that kind of market structure perform badly. High prices, lack of technological innovation, uh, Consumer, in other words, consumers, buyers are exploited on one side, and we don't get the dynamics that we'd like. Is there growing concern like yours about this antitrust area where we're not just going to go for horizontal or vertical, we're just going to look at the deal itself and what it does? Yeah, I think that there is a growing awareness. I, I don't think it dominates yet, but... Uh, uh, Senator Klobuchar of Minnesota has put in some very good proposals to modify uh, antitrust merger law to make it stricter and received at least, I, I, I couldn't call it support, but uh, uh, acknowledgement from uh, Senator Orrin Hatch uh, uh, that indeed we really do need to take another look at what's going on with industry structure because concentration is just growing and growing and growing, and we know it has bad effects. Well, that is a that is certainly one person that you would like to see uh, on your side in this in this particular area. Now, the FTC hasn't approved the deal in the U.S. either. Could there be any pushback from that agency? Uh, no, it's it's before the Justice Department Antitrust Division, not uh, the FTC. Uh, but yes, I mean it. it um, what was it, three weeks ago? No, a couple, three months ago, the, F, the DOJ lawyers were out taking depositions of a number of executives from Monsanto and Bayer. That's what you do if you're thinking there's a serious possibility of bringing a lawsuit. Uh, Thank you we'll so see. much. We'll, we will see, and we'll keep following this. It's, it's a very interesting area and very important. That's Professor Peter Carstensen of the University of Wisconsin Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.